Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. This week is special for me because I get to interview a two-time former colleague. Christina Reynolds and I worked together in the White House and then again later here at Global Strategy Group. I got to see her work up close in both of those settings, but I was an admirer of hers even before that when she was at the DCCC and I was on the Hill. Christina is currently Vice President of Communications at Emily's List, the most successful organization of its kind dedicated to electing pro-choice Democratic women to office. Christina went to Emily's List in 2017 after nearly two decades in political campaigns, government service, and the private sector. Her career includes serving in the Obama White House as Special Assistant to the President and Director of Media Affairs. Before that, she was Director of Rapid Response on the Obama campaign. She has worked on campaigns all across the country in both research and comms. She was Deputy Communications Director for Hillary for America and Research Director for John Edwards' presidential campaign. She was Research and Policy Director at the DCCC during the 2006 midterms, Research Director at the DNC in 2004, and she worked on Senate campaigns for Senators Tom Daschle and Tim Johnson. In the private sector, she's advised clients while working at Grover Park Group and my professional home, Global Strategy Group. And recently, she even wrote a book, with former Emily's List president, Stephanie Shriak, called Run to Win, Lessons in Leadership for Women Changing the World. I am so pleased to be able to welcome Christina, who is a friend and a colleague and someone I really admire. She and I recorded this episode on Friday, September 9th. I hope you enjoy the episode. Christina Reynolds, welcome to Staffer. Hi, Jim. I'm so excited to be here. I am so excited to have you on the show today. Um, As you know, I like to enter these conversations with my guests by learning a bit about um, where they grew up and how they grew up. And I certainly know, and anyone who follows you on Twitter knows, you are a Tar Heel (laughs) through and through. Um, but t- t- talk to I us. I am, about- although I'm actually not a Tar Heel born and bred. Is the um, uh, yes? Is the deep secret breaking um, news? Breaking news. That's right. Um, I I come to it honestly. How's that? Um, I come to it later in life. My um, father was a Marine. And so I moved around quite a bit as a kid, um, lived in parts of Virginia, different parts of Virginia, different parts of North Carolina, one point in Irvine, California, uh, at one point in Florida. I don't really remember the Florida days, but um, moved around a lot. And so um, uh, my view is when you move around that much, you don't have a hometown. And so you get to call your hometown whatever you want. And I call it Chapel Hill. Um, I now actually live in Durham. So I, I call it Durham. It's nice to be in back in North Carolina. Carolina, but but um, it does. It is the place I've lived the longest, so I, that's where I count Chapel Hill. Um, yeah, I got my start. My my mother was a teacher. My father was a Marine. We moved around all over. Um, re, you know, split split marriage in the sense of he was a Republican, she was a Democrat. Um, they raised uh, my sister and I with a sense of public service was important. Um, you should think about your community and what you need to do. You know, to make it better. And uh, raised us to be basketball fans, which if you follow me on Twitter, you know, has stuck. Um, Indeed. And uh, raised us to be sort of willing to go anywhere and, and pick up and move when you needed to, and which is has served me well moving into campaigns. So I went to UNC Chapel Hill, go Tar Heels, um, where I studied journalism and poli-sci. 
And uh, that was sort of the start of things. I, I managed a student body president campaign there, which was, uh, you know, a good, uh, good into campaigns. Um, you know, I loved my, my experience at the journalism school. I'm, I'm grateful they, they asked me to serve on the advisor, alumni advisory board, and I'm, I'm grateful to be more involved these days. But at the time, they didn't do that much political journalism. That was a okay. little bit new. Now there's a lot of, you know, the social media. And, I mean, I like to say I got a great education and the, and the kids these days are getting a much better one. And, um, and, it's, and it's great for them. But so we kind of had to make our own way, those of us who are interested in politics. And I, I did an internship at Governor Hunt's office um, in, in Raleigh and then on his campaign and then did student government and some student newspapers and things like that and knew that politics was where I wanted to be. And so, and, and so tell me about that because I, sure. I'm a, I studied communication when I was in college and I think a lot of people come to politics having explored journalism. Uh-huh. And so, right. So what was it about politics that appealed to you more? Yeah, well, and and I will say I am a person who um, I read all the president's men when I was in high school, and yeah. I had a journalism um, teacher in high school who I loved, Miss Nichols, um, and she, you know, encouraged us to read things like that and understand things like that, and that's why I wanted to go to journalism school. And then I got to school, and I got in my first news writing class. And it was a lot about what being a reporter is. And I thought, this is neat. I like writing, but I really have too much of an opinion to keep it out of my <laughs> yes. my daily business, right? Yes. I need that is to all be, of our flaws. I think that that's a that's very... Right. That's right. Yeah. I need to give people my opinion, you know, <laughs> whether it's through a candidate or through, you know, what I support, but, but I need to be impacting the world that way. I, I will say, and I think we're at a precarious time when it comes to journalism. I am so grateful for all the journalists out there. I am grateful that I get to get to work with them. And and as much as I I often express my frustration at sometimes the way things are covered, it's because I believe they have a critical job in our democracy. Um, so glad they're there. But it's a lot like, and I know I'm sure we'll get into it, it's a lot like the policy wonks. I'm glad they're there. That's not my bag, right? That's yeah. not what I'm interested in. And yeah. and what I like is trying to convince someone of something. And yes. that's where comms fit in for me. Yes, advocacy. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so you, uh, after college, you got into campaims. Um, well, I had almost a, I had a, right I had away, a first but there step. Was, almost okay, right so away. Okay, so talk to me yeah. about that. Yeah, yeah. Although there is a there's a tie to politics here. So, um, I you know I I was a PR and poli sci double major and and wanted to go into public relations. And I I I went down. You know, I had interviews and and got really far down the path with two jobs. One was a huge PR firm in New York. Like I went up to New. It was my first trip to New York. I got a business suit and you know all of that and did my interview. That I got solely because there was a young person helping in the hiring. You know, a younger staffer there who had gone to UNC's journalism school and thought, well, I know they know how to write a press release. And she yeah. took me around. People assumed that she knew me and and it. It was just that alumni network, which I remain grateful for. And then the other place I interviewed was the ACLU of North Carolina, which at the t- is, is larger now, but at the time was four people. I would be the, the lowest, you know, the rung of the four. Um, wow. And it was a job that was administrative assistant and public education coordinator. 
And, um, you know, one job paid a lot better. <laughs> one job was in New York. Now, you know, and I was always willing to move, but one job was in New York. One job I didn't even have to move for, which was almost a little bit of a disappointment for me. But the ACLU, you know, I, um, my Republican Marine dad had always raised us that, you know, um, on the importance of protecting those rights that are in the Constitution. And, you know, I think that's something, um, and, and, and my mother, as a, as a Democrat who was very vocal about how she felt, also felt like you should be able to express your views. You know, you should stand up for freedom of speech and things like that. And so yeah. the ACLU felt like a great fit for me. Um, small operation. The, the executive director at the time was a woman named Deb Ross, who is now in, in Congress for North Carolina. So um, wow. I was proud to say I knew her when. Um, but I had done that for about a year and I, and I loved it, although there were challenges, you know, um, it was answering the mail. It was, I, I, I hate to date myself here, but you some of your <laughs> listeners will be shocked. Um, we would have to, you know, you'd have to turn off the fax line when you wanted to get online because we had one modem <laughs> right. for the whole office. Um, right. So, you know, you didn't get faxes when you were, when you were checking email, but we got more faxes than emails in those days. Um, but but it was it was a great experience. It was an interesting and challenging experience because when we would win court victories, I would want to do a press release. And sometimes they would say, hold on, if we if we advertise this, the legislature will try and take this right away. And it was, mm. you know, an interesting look at how politics worked that way. And then I went to the DNC used to do these training camps where you'd go. I remember it was in, in some office park in Maryland. Um, it was like a three day yes. um, for communicators um, training. And I sort of tagged along with the North Carolina Democratic Party. And I, I was like, this is what I want to do. This mm. is it, right? Campaigns, and this seems fascinating. And, and a move that my mother still doesn't understand, I think. Um, I quit my job first, my, my low-paying. I still bartended on the weekends <laughs> at Applebee's. Like my low-paying nonprofit job. I quit that job first and then went and looked for a job um, as a campaign because I thought I'll go anywhere, right? I'm, I know how to move. I'm willing to do it. I'm young. I don't care. I just want to go get a comms job somewhere. And so uh. that's how I ended up in campaigns. I love it. I mean, what I, I love a number of things about that. Um, but what stands out for me is sort of trusting your gut. And young people need to hear that. Um, and in fact, everyone needs to hear it at different points in their in their professional lives. Like what seems good on paper, you know, if it's not grabbing you in the gut, maybe you should listen to that gut and go with the thing that really is pulling you. And yeah. for you, it was campaigns. Yeah. Um, yeah. You got into campaigns. And as I, you know read your resume and know your background, it wasn't through comms proper. You no. initially spent a good chunk of your career in yeah, research. So can right. you can you talk uh, to, you know, our listeners about like wh the role that research plays on campaigns? Sure. Um, and I fell into research accidentally. So it's a, it's a good lesson to sort of be open to what comes at you um, and listen to what it is. Research is, um, you know, it, I think it's a lot more understood now than it was. When I was in it, it was almost you didn't talk about research. It was sort of the campaign's dirty little secret. Um, but research is the gathering of facts. We used to call it quotes, votes, votes and anecdotes. Um, yeah. And but is the gathering of, of all the publicly available information you can find 
mind, and then the distilling that into a record, a message, uh, you know, a useful format for the campaign to be able to tell people about you, your record, what you stand for, and the and the backup points for it, and your opponent, and what they stand for, and what they stand against. It is, you know, for any communicator who's ever used a message box or anything like that, we're the proof points of the message box, right? And I think um, I've always said good research is not about how many pages are in your research book. It's how well it you can make, you know, tell a story from that research book. And I, you know, I learned that in my first job. I mean, my first job was um, for for a guy running to unseat a Republican um, incumbent, uh, John Edwards. Um, he was, you know, we did it. We won, and we won with a, a fairly large research team it was an important part of it was tearing apart his record and and being able to show people why um uh you know a fresh face was was better here and and would support more north carolinians needs um but it was a it was a fascinating experience it was a really exciting experience and i went into the interview it's funny they called and said we have a job in communications because back in those days and, and in some in some campaigns research falls under the comms director and okay. so they kind of suckered me in and got me there and then in the interview they said no no well it's in research let me explain research and it, it just sold me it because it was a blend of policy and storytelling right it is taking mm -hmm. all those things and as someone i i love reading mysteries right i'm you know it's it's finding things right it's like what's the next nugget what's the thing you can find and and i will confess like i did this in a day when like we went to the library to check out professional right. quarterlies right That's like right. most of this yes. stuff wasn't online um but it was uh it was exciting and i and i loved it and i am very grateful for the experience because i think it also it made me a better writer made me better understand a lot of policy and things like that was there ever a nugget that you found that you're particularly proud of that, you know, was impactful in, in a campaign? Yeah. Um, yeah. I'll tell you um, a couple of my favorites. Um, one, and, and they weren't one nugget, right? Um, uh, Locke Faircloth, who was our opponent in 1998, was a Republican senator, um, owned 14 different businesses um, and owned a lot of uh, hog farms and, and things like that. And, and his biggest attack on John Edwards was he sues people for a living, right? That's, you know, yep. that's a, a, a negative thing. And we went and found all the property records and, and connected him to all of these businesses and then went to the courthouse. And I mean, I spent weeks in a dusty North Carolina courthouse just copying things. They knew me by the time I left. Um, and we found that he had sued. I mean, it was 14 pages, single space, hundreds of lawsuits for people who didn't pay their bills or people who, you know, or contractors or, or whatever. And I remember we got, it was a front page story in the Greensboro News and Record, you know, Locke Faircloth um, has sued hundreds of people in North Carolina um, yeah. under his businesses. Um, and it, you know, I, now that it turned the election, I would argue it probably didn't, but it was pretty exciting and it did end up in a TV ad and it did end up being something that I hopefully muted some of the response to um, uh, to what we what we got there. So. I, I'll tell you, I, I love that because it does show how research is so important to a campaign. And in, in the Edwards campaign, it built a shield, right? Like automatically. Right. But if you were sitting at the Faircloth headquarters, they should be angry at their research staff. 
right like, for not what, right that. because if yeah. you're in a campaign right if you were advising your candidate and that was the number one attack you were making on your opponent with this vulnerability in mind mm-hmm. either it wasn't known or it was terrible advice and either right. way right. right it's a problem yeah um, yeah that's right i want to uh, ask you uh, because you just to, to for so our listeners know you were also senior researcher and deputy research director at the DNC, research director for Tim Johnson's successful re-election uh, to the Senate in 2002, and research director for the Edwards presidential campaign in 03, 04. Mm-hmm. Your, your career, you know, you sort of got formally into the, into the comms space um, when you became communications director for Tom Daschle and his re-election uh, to the Senate. I'm curious, you know, how did you make that transition? What was your pitch? Because I think all of us, you know, um, through our biographies, we develop expertise, which is so incredibly useful. Sometimes people can look at a resume and say, oh, well, that's a research person, not a comms person. Mm -hmm. So how did you sort of persuade them that you should be the comms director for a very high profile race? Well, and and I will say, I will confess that a little of that was a little, um, we had a lot of people coming back to South Dakota after that 2002 successful race um, coming back. And there was, I think, a little desire to give people different titles and, you know, and sort of up them. Um, It was, uh, and so the, the bigger case that I made, I think, was when I when I moved into the Obama world, when I was on the Obama campaign as the rapid response director, and then doing straight comms in the White House. And, and the case was pretty easy then because I had worked with people and 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 Dan's a good Dan Pfeiffer, who was, um, was our I had worked with, I actually worked with going back to the Gore campaign, but I had worked with um, on Tim Johnson's campaign. He was the communications director. I was the research director. And when we came back, I think what Dan understood was that comms and research go hand in hand. You know, um, good research is about telling that story, right? It's not just here's some random facts. It's being able um, to help you make a case, to help you undermine the other person's case. And so, I mean, I'm sure it helped that I had a, you know, I had gone to journalism school, right? I had studied public relations and things like that. Um, And and I had done enough campaigns that I had a sense of how communications worked and flowed. Um, I will say when 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 you and I worked together and when Dan and I worked together in the White House, it used to crack him up every now and again because there were a few things that because I'd kind of skipped those entry level comms jobs that I would ask and he would say, it's amazing to me that you have this, you know, you have this job at the White House doing comms and every now and again, you got to ask your comms assistant something. And I said, yeah, well, you hired me. So here we go. But we get it all done. So it's okay. Um, but I think that's the case. And it, it was a case that um, that I made a little bit. And, and thankfully, the firm understood when I went into the private sector, that that research offers a good, um, you know, you know how to find information, and most importantly, distill information quickly, you know, um, how to um, ferret out what's important and what's just, you know, what's just filler, right? And, and, and how to get to the, get to the bottom of things quickly. And that's important for a communicator. So that I I think was a part of the case. Working with you. And and I think it's true of research people generally, you interrogate information really well, right? A lot of comms people are like, okay, what's the talking point or, you Mm -hmm. know, what, what is it? Okay. I'll go give it. And you were never that person. And it's, 
hugely important <laughs> if you're going to take some information public that you, you know, that right. it's interrogated thoroughly. Well, it's, it's also any, any one of us who's been an opposition or, or a self-researcher, but I love opposition. But, you know, when you've torn apart the other side, you know what to look for. And so you're always thinking about, well, they could hit us for this. They could hit us for that. You know, it's not it's sometimes a negative place to be. But it but I think it helps when you're when you're rolling something out, when you're doing something to have someone say, here are the five bad things that might come at us, right? How do we prepare for that? And that's, it's it's the basis for rapid response is good preparation, right? It's also, I think, good communication starts in that preparation. Yep. So I uh, since you um, mentioned your work in the White House, which I, I, I want to talk about, mm-hmm. um, your role was Director of Media Affairs. Mm-hmm. What is that role mm-hmm. in the White House? Um, it has varied from White House to White House. So it's an interesting thing. Um, and actually, they kind of split the job up. Um, my my After I left, um, our, our friend Tom Gavin came in to, to do the role. And then they kind of split things up. I, I used to joke that that's because no one could do it after Tom and I. But, <laughs> oh, exactly. Um, I'm not sure they would agree with that. But um, <laughs> what it was when 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 I was there was we were basically responsible for all of the reporters who were not regularly in the briefing room, and a few who were, but it meant regional press. So all the regional outlets that cover the White House, some of them are in Washington, some of them are not. Um, it meant um, what we at the time called constituency press, what you might now call coalitions press or things like that. So it's everything from um, black media, um, uh uh, Spanish language media. It's foreign press based in the U.S. So, for example, um, uh, and then and then there's some other. You, you know, sometimes they're called specialty media, but that feels a little dismissive of it. Um, veterans press, right? I remember we did a veterans roundtable with the president and Secretary Shinseki with the with the specific military press. Um, we had LGBTQ press, which was an interesting challenge in in those days. Um, yeah. Uh, we had, um, uh, we had things like, and I remember, um, you know, because, because we ran into some challenges, like any of the, um, the, the, like Armenian American press or the Jewish American press or, you know, things like that, um, all fell into my team. And then we also did, we did some of the daily talking points. Um, we had what we called our rapid response department, um, led when I was there. I'm, I'm very proud of this hire by, um, um, a, a young woman named Kate Bedingfield, who has now um, uh, made, you know, made a bit of a name for herself in the Biden administration <laughs> so. um, and done done incredibly well. Um, and, uh, you know, we did when 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 I was there, as you may remember, I left right as it passed. Um, we were trying to pass Obamacare. It was a pretty big focus of ours. And so a lot of our focus was how do we um, utilize all the levers of the administration um to get to especially regional press, because for us, it was about convincing voters and convincing the the people in those, you know, the legislators who represented those districts that they that they should be for this bill. And so um, that's that it was a lot of that. Um, and it was a lot of, you know, random stuff. So yeah. uh, you had to stay up you on know, everything. I remember um, vividly at that time feeling like you know, here I was in the Ledge Affairs office, and so I knew you know, assigned to me were a certain number of members who we needed to persuade. Mm-hmm. And there was a spreadsheet of like every tool in the administration's mm-hmm. toolbox. And we could go through that spreadsheet for every single member. And some of them were press and some of them were, mm-hmm. you know, related to the cabinet, et cetera. 
But when an administration, when a White House really wants something, it has so many tools when well organized right. and thoughtfully applied to move the agenda forward. And it was, you know, both daunting at that time, but once we got over the hurdle, so rewarding that so yeah. many people, right, had to play a yes. part in getting, yes. getting that over the line. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's an interesting challenge and also an interesting um uh, I think, you know, it just, it, it, it kept things interesting. Right. I mean, I remember even when we passed the stimulus, um, I, some of your coworkers, Johannes Abraham and Gary Lee, and I spent a lot of time negotiating out <laughs> when do we tell the member of Congress that this grant is coming versus when are we going to announce it in the press and <laughs> yes. who gets first go. And yes. every now and again, I'd come back to my desk and there'd be a cookie from the, the white house mess waiting on my desk, which would be sort of an apology for, we told this, you know, we told this member, you're not going to get to announce it. Um, and, uh, but, but all of that has to work together. I mean, it's why the work of government is so difficult. And that this is just us selling something, right? This is not even the doing of the thing. Right. Um, yeah. It's so difficult, because so much has to work together. And it's, I mean, it's part of my I'm glad it's why I'm grateful to be on this. And why I'm glad you're doing this podcast, because I think public service gets such a bad rap. Um, and particularly under the Trump administration, they, you know, but the constant sort of, you know, complaining about bureaucrats and any other name you want to throw at them when when that work is critical and often unheralded and and um, really difficult. Yeah. So well put. Um, let me ask. So, you know, reflecting on your time in in public service, is there you know, is there a moment that you look back on or like that? I got chills at that. Yeah. Um, yes, many, but I will say the one that I remember the most, and I've talked to talked to her about it a lot, is um, my friend she, uh, Melanie Newman, who we we work together now because she's at Planned Parenthood, and we we get to work together a lot. Um, we were both on the Obama campaign, and we were in Chicago on election night. And it was wonderful when he won, right? Very exciting. And as someone who had worked on three losing presidential campaigns, let me tell you, like, it's just, it's much better to win. Um <laughs> But it, I remember the moment we were out at Grant Park when they announced that we had won Virginia. And for Melanie and I, I had grown up largely in the South, Virginia and North Carolina. Melanie had grown up in the South. And to see a black man win a Southern state um, meant so much to us that this is this is the whole country coming together, right? We didn't win every state, obviously, no one does, but um, but it is the idea that things could be changing um, from two people who who came from that area. It it gave me chills, and it's also, um, you know, it was like, oh, we're gonna right some of the wrongs here. You know, we're gonna fix some of the things that. Um, that have been going wrong and, and look out for people in ways that the president, um, then, then Senator Obama talked about so compellingly, I was all in. And so to know that he was going to get to do that was a pretty exciting moment. Yep. No, that, that night, I think for the country, and this includes folks that may not have supported him, but I think the election Mm -hmm. of president Obama was at that time very much viewed as a good thing we did together, right? Like our country did a good thing just now. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it was beautiful. Um, and it's so well put um, by you as, as someone who did grow up in the South and what it meant from that perspective. Yeah. Um, you mentioned all the campaigns, the presidential campaigns mm-hmm. that you've worked on. <laughs> and, you know, I know, and, and I think all of our listeners know, like 
when you're working at a high level on presidential campaigns, you are in an elite core of political staffers. And that is you, Christina. Like the reason you keep being asked to to play leading roles on, on very important campaigns is because you are so good at what you do. You're such a great colleague. Um, your candor and your advice is just so bankable. Um, That's very kind. Thank you. I, I, I mean that fully as a colleague and, and as an observer. You know, the other thing about presidential campaigns is it is like the major leagues, right? That is the major leagues of political campaigns. And so they are in some ways different from other campaigns. Mm-hmm. And they're also similar mm-hmm. to, you know, the you know a house race or, a, yeah. you know, a local race. So can you talk about some of the similarities and differences of, of uh, presidential campaigns and what you took away? Sure. Um, I, you know, I think that I think... I have been I have been fortunate in that my campaign experience. Um, one campaign I was I was at the DNC doing doing research for the campaign, um, and in and in the rest of them I was in headquarters, which is sort of a different animal than being in the states. And I think it's it's interesting if you talk to people where they came up is what they think is the best way to do a campaign, right? Um, uh, and but I think. What you learn on, I think everyone should do a presidential campaign. And I think even if if that's going to, you know, a random primary state and knocking doors, I think it gives you such a glimpse of politics, such an amazing look at... Um, how we decide things in this country and and vote, you know, how you communicate with voters and why that matters and what you do. Um, and so I'm, I'm grateful for all of them. Um, they have certainly gotten harder, um, I think, with the, you know, we used to talk about a news cycle and what's a news cycle anymore, right? Um, you're constantly on there. Const- people are constantly able to reach each other and, and, and do things. Um, and so I'm, I will say I'm glad for the advent of things like unions and campaigns and things like that. Um, I, I, I get into a, when I, in my day, we walked up uphill five miles, right? In the snow. <laughs> yeah, um, right. and then realize, no, nobody should, right? Maybe we, you know, it's okay if we don't walk, you know, if we only walk a mile and maybe it's not all in the snow. Right. Um, uh, but I, but I think, so the difference is, you know, a presidential campaign, the spotlight is on you, um, I think, in a much larger way. Uh, it is harder. I have worked. Um, I have worked both on sort of the upstart can- candidate and the front runner candidate, and both have their challenges. You know, it's difficult to go into work every day and be like, "Oh, we're not even in that story." You know, I can remember um, working for John Edwards in two thousand three, and he was a good debater. And we, you know, research is a big part of debate, and we would work really hard, and he would have what we thought was a good debate, and here would be this story, and at the end, it would say also appearing Carol Mosley Braun and John Edwards. And it was like, oh man. Um, you know, yeah. that's tough when you're doing that. And I and I think it's tough for the people out in the field who are like, people, you know, don't see our guy or our gal as the person who can win. I think when you're the front runner, you have all the spotlight on you and that's hard too. Um, and so, you know, the 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 spotlight is harder. The stakes are higher in that sense, right? Um, you know, you see more candidates dropping out before a primary in a in a presidential race because it's harder to keep them afloat and things like that. A house race can sort of operate on less and you can keep moving. Um, But the lessons are the same, right? The, the work that you do in so many ways, um, the, you know, how do I, what is my message? What am I trying to sell? 
what am I trying to tell them not to not to buy, right? And um, and how am I going to communicate that? And then who is my audience, right? Because anyone who works in campaigns know you're not communicating to everybody. Um, you're looking for fifty plus one, right, or fifty plus two, or whatever your you know safe margin yep. is. You yep. are not going to get a hundred percent of the vote. And so, how do I figure out what my audience is? How do I communicate with them? What are creative things I can bring to break through the clutter? All of those things are the same on both levels it's it's just the spotlight i think is a little higher and harder um in the presidentials and so uh, you know i i think campaigns uh, you know i will say and i uh, you're someone i think who who uses the same i'm always happy to hire people from campaigns because i know that the experience that they've had it's a little like dog years right you've crammed so much experience um because you're often you're operating on a lower budget so you're probably doing more and you're probably punching above your weight and um and you're working more hours probably and you know um it's such great experience um and you learn so much so fast that i just think campaigns particularly for communicators like get in there do a cycle and boy you're gonna learn a lot no doubt it's such an antagonistic environment and i I know that the the public could hear that word and think oh that they they really are always fighting campaigns, you are in a debate. You are in a, Mm -hmm. you know, an environment in which you are competing every single day for every news cycle, which now are happening all the time. All the time. So, you know, those who are working on them are learning these lessons, you know, multiple times every day. And in a, in a corporate setting or in a non-political setting, those cycles are just much longer Mm -hmm. between, you know, controversy and, and uh, victory, right? Yep. Um, you, so you also have had a very successful, uh, private sector experience, both at Glover Park Group and, uh, my professional home, uh, <laughs> yes. Global Strategy Group. Yes. Um, but I, I actually, I want to, uh, talk to you now about your role at Emily's List, because mm-hmm. we were just talking about campaigns. You are the mm-hmm. vice president of communications and you also mentioned, you know, hiring. So when you are looking mm-hmm. to bring staffers into Emily's List, which has a reputation for producing amazing staff. What are you looking for in the people you're hiring? Um, yeah, and I have to give a little shout out to Emily's List staff. We There are so many Emily's List alums all around the country um, who have done such great work, but I always think it's worth noting, you know, Emily's List's very first executive director was your former boss, Rosa DeLauro. Yes. So we've been good at good at hiring from the, from the get-go, I think. <laughs> That's um, true. Uh, what am I looking for? I'm looking for a few things. And, I, and you know, it's, it's interesting. In recent years, I think we've, um, as we've tried to, tried to open up, as, as um, organizations like ours have done DEI initiatives, as we looked for ways to how do we open up our hiring? How do we make sure that we're not just falling into the trap of um, the resumes of people I know and the, and the people they know, right? Um, and how do we truly open ourselves up? Um, we have expanded out what we consider um, applicable experience, right? We have thought more um, more broadly about it, and it has paid off um, tremendously. I mean, we have us. I have we have a staff now where um, on my team um, there are twelve other people, and every one of them comes with different experience, and it, and it's so valuable. And what I love is every day when we sit and talk about things, and every now and again someone will throw out, "Hey, I can't get this pitched." Anyone have ideas? And you get those different ideas from you know, from the, 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 
um, you know, most junior person to the most senior person because we come from different places. I mean, what I'm looking for, obviously, as a communicator, you want a good writer. Um, and I and I always tell people like that includes when you send that email saying, you know, hello, I would like this, or, you know, I guess cover yes. letters, but we who sends cover letters anymore, right? They're emails. Um, I'm, I'm looking at that. Um, I am looking at, um, you know, there's a little of, do you follow the instructions of the process, right? Do you get our name right? We're Emily's list. We're an acronym, like spell it right. You know, um, uh, but, but most importantly, what I'm looking for is, um, do you have, um, you know, depending on the job, do you have some experience that might be applicable, right? Um, that you can pull from, do you have a willingness to learn and an interest in learning? Do you have an interest in, I think one of the things as an organization that is, you know, we are in the advocacy space, right? Um, in the sense that, I mean, we're an electoral space, but, but we're here for a purpose. We're here to elect democratic pro-choice women. Are you interested in that? Because some of the days are going to be long and you're going to, you know, we're an electoral organization, we're going to lose races. There will be candidates that break your heart um, that you just were all in for and you thought they did everything right and they lose. And so what needs to keep you going is that motivation. So I'm looking a little for that motivation. And then I'm looking for um, someone who can balance a bunch of different things because we always have, you know, we have so many different candidates that um, the ability to to balance and to and to navigate between, uh, you know, a long to do list and a, and a variety of priorities, I think is a, it's an un, um, unsung hero in the, you know, in your toolbox. Um, you know, you talked about commitment to the mission and Emily's list's mission is so clear, electing pro-choice Democratic women to office. It has been so successful over the years. This cycle, as every cycle, you are looking at a lot of races, right, yeah. a across a broad spectrum and all over the country. And six months ago, this cycle was very gloom and doom about mm -hmm. Democratic prospects. Mm -hmm. And two things have happened this year in the last few months that have helped uh, change that perception. One, you know, the, the Biden administration did uh, and, and Democrats on Capitol Hill have succeeded in breaking the legislative logjam, had some really important legislative victories. But even more than that is a stinging decision by the Supreme mm -hmm. Court to overturn Roe v. Wade in its Dobb decision. And that is so painful. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it's also directly related to the mission of Emily's List. Yeah. So, you know, just take me to that day when that decision yeah. came out and what happened at Emily's List that day and the days that followed. Well, I mean, I'll tell you, almost an even more interesting day is the day the draft opinion leaked. Um, mm. okay. uh, and and yeah. just to, to take, so that happened to be the day before our big annual gala. Um, uh, the, literally the night before. And what I think a lot of people didn't realize is just by chance, that day, we had announced, you know, had been working with a reporter and it, and it went public and then we put out the press release that morning um, with NARAL and Planned Parenthood, um, 
that that the three of our organizations were going to raise and spend 150 million um, on, you know, making sure electorally that this um, that this mattered, right? That we would do the electoral work um, to have an impact here around abortion, um, and that we would elect the people who would who would move us forward, recognizing that the Supreme Court was not likely to come back with good news. Um, I'm not sure we saw how bad it would be. Um, I'm not sure we we knew how bad that we saw that as a possibility, obviously. And then that night, literally, as we're, you know, prepping for um, for our, uh, you know, I happen to be in D.C., um, we get word. And so suddenly we have to, I mean, I remember um, uh, because and I'm telling you this because it's a little more of a colorful picture here. You know, we literally had a bunch of our senior staff and LaFonza on a Zoom and a number of us were in our jammies, right? Um, we were in our hotel rooms and and it was, and LaFonza yeah. said, well, I guess we got to rewrite every speech. And we said, yep, sure do. Um, she rewrote, rewrote her own speech, but, you know, we had to work through and figure that out. Um, we happened to have the vice president who was coming just to do a welcome and ended up giving the, you may remember, how dare they? Um, that speech was at our conference. Um, we had Stacey Abrams, who was already going to be a speaker. And, and, and instead, I think, spoke to her own path as someone who had grown up in a very religious house and thought abortion was wrong and how she's come to a different space on that. Um, and so it was wonderful to be sort of in in community with a bunch of people who supported this mission, right? Um, that was great. On, on the day that the decision came down, we had obviously done a lot of prep. You know, we'd worked with our candidates. We were ready to go on a number of things. Um, but, I, you know, I'll tell you, Jim, as a communicator, I thought we're still going to have to make the reporters pay attention to this, right? It's going to mm. be a big blow up and then it's going to go away. Um, and we're still going to have to convince some of the consultants that this is actually an issue that people will vote on. And um, thankfully, the polls did it for us. And as you all know, because I know um, you were uh, integrally involved in, in Kansas, um, we have always known that the pro-choice position is a popular one. We have known that this is a majority, you know, this is a pro-choice country. Um, we have always known that people don't like their rights taken away. Um, but the challenge, and I saw this going back to when I worked for Hillary Clinton, was that people didn't believe that right was actually at risk. And yeah. the Supreme Court did that job for us. And all of a sudden they said, no, you know, this is not OK. And what we are seeing, we're seeing young women come out and register to vote in larger numbers that, you know, proportionally than than we had expected. We are seeing people come out to vote on this issue in a way that I will say I try not to be snotty with reporters when, the, you know, a lot of them call and say, well, how does this change things for Emily's list or for your candidates? And I say, well, it doesn't. I guess what our candidates have been talking about this we're all good but it changes things in that now um you guys get that this is a powerful issue and voters understand that while they might have agreed on it they're going to come out and vote people out who don't agree with them who won't stand with them and that's something that i think will have an you know is it the only thing no as my boss likes to say people vote with their whole selves is it a huge issue yes and do I think it can change? It will change the selection. Yes, I sure do. I do too. Um, I mean, to your point, we saw it in Kansas. <clears throat> We're seeing it in races across the country, and mm -hmm. it's not every you know cycle that an issue like this really blows wind right into the sails of of a campaign. Right. Um, 
because it is a it's not just another issue right this no, this one feels it is different fundamentally about rights and freedom and and for people who you know for people like me who are past the age of needing it right for people who um you know may not have ever had had a need for reproductive health care it still is about who gets to make the decisions for you and yes. and that's something that fundamentally Americans agree with. And I think what's what's interesting to me is we used to have this debate around how many weeks or which abortions are good abortions and which abortions are bad abortions. And I think what we're hearing now, as more people tell their stories of why I had an abortion or why I needed one and can't get one or, you know, things like that. I think it's even expanding people's understanding of this is a right that we shouldn't compromise on. You know, we need to just be out there. And and it's a powerful moment. I will say, you know, to speak about staff for a moment, it's also a challenging one. You know, at Emily's List, our staff is probably 80% women. Um, we, are, um, we are people who were in this fight for a long time. We have, we have a lot of people who came from the repro movement, you know, who came from ad, repro advocacy groups. Um, and so it was, you know, it's always hard in those moments when you are both dealt with a personal, you know, gut punch and also a lot of work that's got to get done right away. And I think we talked about it a lot on my team of something of, I think I'm so busy, I'm not acknowledging it and that's okay. Right. You know, I'm going to, and I'll give myself space for that later. But I do think it's something, um, I think sometimes it gets knocked as a bad rap, but the idea of people bringing themselves into work is something that we as managers have to acknowledge and have to have a better understanding of um, because that's so important. You know, what you bring to work is important in the work that you do. And it's also important in how you're able to do your work. And it's that's something right. that um, this, you know, was a, was a, a gut punch for, for a lot of folks. Yeah. You, um, I think this issue would not I don't think the Supreme Court would have landed this way if for 75 years prior to it Emily's list had existed and <laughs> we had a government that really reflected the country looked a little different yeah 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 I think that's right um and you have written a book uh yes. with uh, uh Emily's uh, Emily's list former executive director Stephanie Shriak called Run to Win, Lessons in Leadership for Women Changing the World. Mm-hmm. Um, the the blurbs on the book are amazing. Hillary Clinton, <laughs> Stacey Abrams, New Mexico Governor Michelle, Michelle Lujan Grisham, Vice President Harris. Um, tell me some of, you know, what you, why you wrote the book and what you want women who are reading it to take away. Mm-hmm. Um we wrote the book because um, we started thinking about it in the 2018 cycle, which was this incredible, you know, more women coming out, more women running. So many of those women, um, particularly the women who ran and won in the House, had never been, in, you know, had never run for office before. And mm-hmm. that's a little new. And that was something different. And and learning their stories and understanding them, being at Emily's List at a point when we adjusted our training um, and how we dealt with this, you know, this influx of women and um, and also learning to adjust to this new model. Right. And 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 a different um, uh, a different type of candidate and all of that um, was a fascinating time. And Stephanie, um, our, our former president, 
wanted to tell that story, but we thought about, well, how do we tell this story in a way that allows other people to sort of learn from it, right? Because that's what, um, what the, the amazing thing about working at Emily's List is that you get to see these women work together and provide advice for each other. And, you know, we tell a story in the book about one candidate running for office who wanted to know what it would be, what she would do with her kids, you know, um, and uh, Stephanie connected her with, you know, a house member who b- moved her kids to DC and one who didn't. So she could get a sense for how that worked, right? We saw yeah. in 2018, um, the the women who'd come from military and defense type backgrounds sort of forming a little text group. We saw, um, I still get emotional about every time Deb Holland and Sharice Davids, the first two Native American women ever to get elected um, to the House, um, every time they were in a room together and providing that support for each other. And I remember Sharice once saying, well, Deb and I have finally been able to give speeches together where we don't both cry a little bit, you know, um, out of this yeah. movie. You know what this means. Um, it's just uh, we we wanted to be able to take the lessons that we use in training people, and that these women kind of taught us, and offer it to all women because we you know Stephanie and I would talk about this. Like Stephanie always says, when you ask for money, and Stephanie Shrek is an amazing fundraiser. When you ask for money, she said the lesson that um, that she would give people is you make the ask, and then you do one of two things: you either take a drink of water, so you're not talking, right, or you stop and you count to seven, right, and you make them. And I said, oh, my God, where were you when I was negotiating salary? Because every <laughs> yeah. time I've negotiated a salary, it's been here's the, you know, I'll say I would like this much, but money's not going to be a factor. I mean, I really want the job so we can work some, you know, like I will talk right. myself yeah. down. And and I thought, you know, that's one of the things that we thought of is these are good lessons for everyone. So it's, it's called run to win, but it's not just meant for people running for office. It's meant for people who um, can sort of learn some of the things. You know, we all need a support system. We all need to get back up from losing, right? Losing is a, you know, we always say at Emily's List, like losing is just another step in your journey. It's not the end. Um, with the number of women who have lost races and gotten up and won, you know, amazing things um, is large. And we are grateful for all of them, right? And so those sorts of lessons, we wanted to sort of frame the book around that. And and one of the biggest ones, I will say for any of your, your women listeners here, is that I think a lot of us feel like... Um, you know, you need to prepare and that preparation is long, right? I have to know everything before I can walk into this situation. And women have a tendency to do that more than men do. And what we wanted to say was, yes, prepare, but also jump, right? You can't just sit and wait because you're never going to be fully prepared. And you and I have worked with elected officials who, who prove that point every day, right? Like, um, they're, yeah. they don't all know everything, and that's okay. And so that's those are some of the lessons that we wanted to tell in, in writing the book. And it was a lot of fun. It was great to do. I, um, for Since this is only a podcast, I was nodding vigorously uh, <laughs> to Christina's uh, point there about preparing, yes, but also jumping and, and so many other points that you made. Um, the book is important. I, I do recommend Thank people read it. Um, we're coming up uh, to the top of the hour. I have two more questions for you. Yes, Christina. sir. Um, they're my recurring segments. One is called In the Vault. Can you tell us about a time where you royally screwed up and what you learned from it? Um, yes. Uh, I will say I once, um, 
I once emailed basically the entire campaign's talking points to uh, the wrong email, and that's. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it was a mistake, and and the lesson there is just don't be careful who you're emailing, right? But um, no, the the one that that comes to mind that has has literally um, I do a lot of rapid response trainings, and this has has been built in now is. Um, George Bush in 2000 put out a, an education proposal um, and was was touting his record. And, you know, that was one of my issues in DNC research. And we put out, we had this amazing statement from someone saying, you know, criticizing George Bush on his record in Texas. And it was really great. And we put it out. And then all of a sudden, I get all these calls. Say, I got a call from my boss saying, hey, I'm getting called yelled at. What, you know, who is this group? And I realized I had quoted someone and didn't know really know who the group was. And it turns out the person I had quoted ran a um, uh, basically a voucher, uh, you know, a, a voucher advocacy, you know, advocating for private for public school money to go to private schools. Um program you know in 2000 and we got calls from teachers and and they were very anti-teachers union right we got calls from teachers unions we got i mean it was a a silly little thing but enough people had paid attention um and and so it reminded me of a couple of things number one and i tell people that what you have to be when you do response is is fast accurate and thoughtful and thoughtful means, you know, have I thought through the political ramifications of what I'm doing, right? Have I thought through, um, who am I quoting? Who am I citing? Who are my validators? All of those things. Um, and have I done the research I needed to do? So that's, that's one thing that I learned from it. The other thing that I learned from it is I spent probably the next week, Oh my God, I screwed up. I am awful. I'm a bad researcher. I did. And, you know, to the point where my boss said to me, I almost, I, I don't want you to screw up, not because I care about the screw ups, but because you beat yourself up so much, you're not productive for the next week. And, and I, and, you know, I'm, I will say I've learned this lesson in theory, probably more than in uh, practice, <laughs> but um, is that like, yes, when you make a mistake, own up to it and tell people. And I think this sometimes doesn't happen enough these days. I get it. I know I messed up here. I won't do it. You know, like, here's how I won't do it again. Right. And then you got to get back to work. Right. And I think yeah. sometimes we skip over that middle step and it is important to, to know. Right. Um, but so true. I, that's, um, you know, being counterproductive just makes a mistake worse. Right. It, you know, if I'm not getting my job done, I have then taken what was a small mistake and made it a bigger mistake because I'm not doing my my job. So the, you know, that's my, I, that's the lesson I learned. I love asking people this question. I get so many interesting answers and stories, but the self-forgiveness part is a really important part of every mistake that not everyone recognizes. And I'm so glad you talked about it. Um, okay. Last question. I have a fantasy of raising the money and building a hall of fame to staffers on the national mall. If I were to succeed, mm-hmm. who would be your nominee yeah. for the Stafford Hall of Fame? So I, I will say, I um, this is a really hard question because there are so many potential. I'd put you in there. I, oh, I know yeah. that we've had um, – uh, 
you know, you, you, someone said Joel Johnson, I think, um, Katie Fallon might've, um, you know, there's been, um, some people, I will say one of your participants, Cecilia Munoz was a huge, um, was someone who I, um, learned a lot from when we were in the white house together, but I'm going to go back and I'm sorry, but I'm going to say two, um, two people that you and I worked with when we were, uh, in the Obama white house who, who both taught me very specific things. Um, uh, some of us used to joke that like I don't want to go to a meeting unless Buffy Wicks is running that meeting. Buffy Wicks, who is now a legislator in California, she's doing amazing work. I could not be prouder to know her and to watch her um, run the world. But Buffy could manage a meeting like nobody's business. You went in with an agenda. You came out with to-do lists. You you know you knew you had a purpose. Time was well used. And in an era, I mean, this was certainly true when we were in the White House. It still happens when we have so many meetings and so little time to do work. Keeping meetings efficient, but you know, so you so you have the space to have the discussions you need. But also people know what they're supposed to do. What am I what am I thinking about coming into this? What am I bringing to it? And um, it's something I mean, Patrick Dillon and I used to joke like, oh, is Buffy running? Oh, great. OK, I'll come to this meeting. Um, <laughs> And so I would say I learned that from Buffy. And then Stephanie Valencia is someone who I aspire to be Stephanie in the way she mentors people and the way she offers advice. And she I heard her once on a podcast talk about she has a tracking system, you know, where she she takes and I I, I tried to set it up and it's, you know, now two years old. And those people <laughs> are probably now my boss now, the people who I put in there. But um, I do think asking for advice, you know, I, I want to be the person and sometimes people fall victim to my schedule or just, I didn't get back to them or things like that. But you, you know, we all came up learning from people and you want to provide people that opportunity. It's even harder in a virtual world. It's harder in a world where you've had COVID, you know, we've had COVID tamping things down and changing the way we work. And so, um, I want to be someone who is able to be a mentor and a resource to people. Um, and I always look to Stephanie who somehow always in a cheery, like Stephanie is just a delightful human being. Um, but also offers that advice and that thoughtful, you know, she's always thinking about who can I connect together. Um, and so I would, I would say those two, if I, if I have to uh, list two, I, we could go on for another hour. I know. I, I can only imagine right? how yeah. difficult that was a question yeah. for you in particular, but those are fantastic nominees and the rationales for each are perfect. Um, I've enjoyed this conversation so much, Christina. It it reminds me how much I miss seeing you every day and working with you. Um, You are doing the Lord's work and I I wish you nothing uh, but success. Um, Thank you for sharing the time and insights with our listeners today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all. Thanks all.